right. All right. Well, it is 6.01 here at Radio Free Brooklyn and Resonance FM in the UK. And uh, that means you're about to start listening to Sitting with Jan Luca. I am Jan Luca. I will be sitting with you till 7 p.m. And uh, sitting with me today, yes, from Nashville, is uh, Tamara Savignano, um, who has a documentary out on the late great Guy Clark songwriter. Um, Tamara's been a publicist, I guess, a, a veteran publicist in Nashville for a number of years, um, was Guy Clark's publicist for a while and became his biographer and um, and now has a documentary uh, movie on Guy Clark out, uh, streamable. We will find out where later on here. And um, if you, this actually would be, I suppose, part two of uh, last week, because last week I did a Guy Clark feature and um, I played a bunch of his music. And um, yeah, he goes back in the early part of the 70s, the early 70s, you know, country music, it was a fascinating time for music. Everything was being reassembled and broken down and rebuilt. And there was a young crew of Nashville songwriters. Um, You know, country music at the time uh, was divided by the rather conservative, short back and side, uh, well-dressed, country folk and the rather raggedy uh, jeaned up uh, long haired um, smoking, uh, drinking and smoking dynamite hippie crew and they didn't particularly uh, mix very well they started to sort of mix in the early 70s um, around the time of the outlaw movement uh, Willing, Waylon Jennings uh, you know Chris Christopherson and so on and also there was a new breed of songwriter that got to Nashville Towns Van Zandt, Guy Clark was one of them, Rodney Kroll, Steve Earle. Um, and Guy Clark was, he was older, a little bit older than the others. He, um, people sort of gravitated towards him. He had a little bit more experience under his belt and he started having uh, get-togethers at his house that he shared with his wife, Susanna, and sometimes Towns Van Zandt too. And um, he sort of became maybe the hub of a type of songwriting movement um, that was rather new to the time. It was a bit folkier maybe than uh, than regular uh, commercial country music. Um, and it was sort of a little bit more direct and, um, and like that. A- anyway, over time, he sort of became kind of... He was sort of considered... Uh, like a poet, like a like a, a master of the short story, if you like. Uh, I wrote about him several times. He sort of um, he was considered one of those things, one of those artists um, that are rather very reliable. Um, whenever a Guy Clark record came out, you knew it was going to have ten really good songs on it. <laughs> It was reliable and direct and sort of rather simple in ways, rather like a Zippo lighter or rather like a um, a leather jacket or something. So anyway, (laughs) sitting with me is Tamara Savignano, biographer, documentary filmmaker. And uh, are you there? Oh, hang on. Let me get this all sorted out. Did this work out, Tamara? Yeah, I can hear you fine, John Luca. My goodness, that's fantastic. How was my introduction? It was great. Oh, good. 
I'm glad to be here with you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for sitting with me, actually. Um, when did you meet Guy? And Because you were quite close to him in his last 10 years, I think, right? Yeah, we, Guy and I met in 1998, and we became friends. And um, by the end of his life, we were quite good friends and intimates, of course, because we worked on his biography together, and, and um, my husband and I were working on this film. Um, but we, yeah, from 1998 on. Um, so, uh, and I think, you know, it shows in the film um, that we had an intimate relationship because everybody spoke so openly and Guy asked them to speak openly. Um, and I feel like that gives the film an intimacy that um, a journalist that didn't know the players really couldn't get. Yeah, um, and also you, you had... You didn't swamp, I should say the, the documentary is called Without Getting Killed or Caught, um, which is a line off uh, one of Guy's earlier sort of most famous songs, I suppose, uh, L.A. Freeway. And um, you didn't swamp it with talking heads. You, you had, um, you know, you had a few of his very close personal friends and associates Right. Right. That was by design. Yeah. Yeah. We, we just wanted to, you know, we tell the story from Susanna's diaries and uh, we have Academy Award winner Sissy Spacek narrating in Susanna's voice. And we really wanted Guy and Susanna to tell the most of the story. So we used Talking Heads sparingly. And the ones that we did use were quite close to Guy and Susanna. Um it wasn't, you know, somebody on the fringes. It was Rodney Crowell and Steve Earle and Verlin Thompson, who was on the road with Guy forever, and Barry Poss, who signed Guy to Sugar Hill Records, and uh, Terry and Joe Harvey Allen, dear, dear friends of the Clarks, um, Vince Gill, who started working with Guy when Vince was quite young. Um, so we, we felt really um, comfortable that we had the right people in the room. Yeah, and um, I it just occurred to me that we should probably play something um of guys before we talk about him um i was going to put up i mean it, it's good that you've mentioned um vince gill because people might not make that connection uh between guy clark and vince gill um I, i'm kind of tempted to play rita baloo it's tempting to play one of his sort of iconic songs but um uh, vince gill is on old number one yes I'm not mistaken. He's, uh, you know what? He might be on old number one. If not, he was on the next record. But he, he and Guy go back many years. They met at the Troubadour in L.A. when Vince's band was opening um, for Guy. Vince's the band he was in at the time with Byron Berline, and uh, have been, you know, were dear friends right up until Guy's death. Um, Rita Ballou is a great choice. I mean, Rita Ballou is a song that led me to Guy, and it's the very first song on his very first album. So I think it's a great choice. Okay, so I'll play a little bit of that. Um, I should just say, I'm, I'm not going to play whole songs, but um, if anyone listening wants to uh, listen, there will be a Spotify playlist coming up um, in a, uh, well, actually pretty soon. So pretty soon after the show. So I'm going to play a little bit of Guy Clark, um, off his first album, just to give an idea of who we're talking about. And here is off his uh, first LP, Rita Ballou.
She could dance that slow valley Shuffle to some cowboy hustle How she made them trophy buckles Shine, shine, shine Wild-eyed Mexican silver Tricking dumb old cousin Willard Into thinking that he got her this time Guy Clark and Rita Baloo off Guy's first album, Old Number One. And uh, with me is Tamara Savignano, who just did a, uh, a, a, a feature documentary on uh, on Guy. And uh, Tamara, do you know anything about Rita Baloo? Um, if it was based on anyone or how he wrote it or anything like that? Yes, so Guy Oh, sorry about that. Let me let me turn this down because I have everything coming out of different channels. Oh, there we go. How about now? Guy spent his early childhood in the West Texas town of Monahans, which was near Gardner State Park, and they used to have these dances there. And so he was thinking about those dances when he wrote the song. And he had an English teacher in Rockport on the south coast of Texas where he uh, spent his coming of age years. And her name was Martha Ballou. So he borrowed that last name of Ballou and and um, and kind of, you know, remembered those dances at, at Gardner State Park. Texas is pretty much through all of his records. Uh, right yes, to the end, right? and even though he did move to Nashville in 1972, he still went back to Texas quite frequently throughout his life. He spent a lot of time in Texas, and he would have moved back there if the publishing company would have been there. Um, so he was a Texan through and through. Nashville was where he resided, but Texas was his home. Yeah, it's worth saying, actually. Um, you know, there's a type of narrative that Texan songwriters, and you can correct me if I'm wrong or going overboard on this, but, um, you know, from uh, Texas has a quite a rich storytelling and narrative tradition. Um, you know, you think of songwriters uh, like, well, Billy Joe Shaver, um, Delbert McClinton, obviously Guy Towns Van Zandt, um, Chris Christopherson that was originally from Texas. Um, there's sort of a, a, a particular, uh, like a typical Texan way of telling a story. Is, is Am I correct in that? Did Guy, did Guy Clark ever address that in any way? 
Yeah, well, I think, you know, for Texans, especially Texas just looms large in everything they do. Um, so they look to Texas and that rich history for their stories. And, you know, as Rodney says in our film, Texas loves their heroes. And Guy was a true blue Texas hero. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Texas was really important in his songwriting. And um, he wrote a lot of autobiographical songs about growing up in Texas and life in Texas. Um, and I find it interesting that, you know, he spent his, he was born in Monahans and spent his young years in West Texas, but then he grew up on, uh, in Rockport on the Gulf coast, which is a beach town. And just the, the differences between those two places, they may as well be two different countries. Um, so I, I, you know, I think that both of them informed Guy, um, and, and the other parts of Texas too, which he traveled around extensively. And, you know, and Texas is big. You yeah. know, it's huge. So there's a there's a lot to explore. Well, 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 Mona had Texas. And I mean, I, I saw him play many, many times as <laughs> well. You know how he always used to introduce Mona Hans Texas. He used to say halfway between Pecos and nowhere. Yes. Yes. And if you if you drive to Monahans from Austin, it's a good eight or nine hours in the car. And. <laughs> Uh, you have to stop for gas every time you see a gas station because yes. otherwise you're going to be out of luck. Um, it's, you know, it is way out there. Um, and I, I went to Rockport first when I was working on my book, and it's just this idyllic little beach town. And then I went to Monahans after that, and I was like, well, no wonder they moved. Um, <laughs> you know, living in Monahans to me would be, you know, really difficult. It's really out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and Rockport is just this, you know, laid back shrimp boats and, you know, salty beach, you know, taste and sea breezes and seagulls and flip flops and shorts. It's just a completely different lifestyle. Yeah, there's something uh, particularly uh, dusty about um, guy songwriting and and again I keep coming back to sort of the Texas way of telling a story um, you know there, there is something rather parched and dusty but um, from Texas songwriters including I would say Rodney Kroll who you just mentioned who's also from Texas but there is sort of something uh, dry and dusty um, direct about their I say dry and dusty if they're not from Rockport of course Yeah, I mean, I think also, you know, Rodney grew up in Houston, but Mm. he grew up on the poor side of town. And, you know, there there's just a lot of rich characters in these lives and they're not afraid to write about them, Mm. you know, where where some people that are maybe more um, highly cultured and highly educated like to sweep those characters under the rug and don't really bring them out. Um, But the Texans, that's, you know, they meet a character like that, like, you know, guy with Jack Prigg and Desperado's waiting for a train. I mean, and he he writes about him. Right. Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, that that's a good point. And um, I'm wondering if there was a uh, like a schism between the um, the Texan songwriters in Nashville and the country music songwriters in Nashville, seeing that they were from sort of different sides, different sides of life. 
I don't think there was a schism. I think that the, the Nashville mainstream country writers just have a different job. And, um, you know, and I'm not judging that. It's right. what they do. They get in a room and they write a song to be a hit on country radio. And they're, well, they used to be paid handsomely for it. Um, and that was their job to to write songs for radio where Guy and his songwriter friends, uh, you know, they would have loved to be on the radio, but it just that wasn't what they were doing. They weren't writing songs to be hits. They were writing songs as poetry. And it's just a very different lifestyle and, and a very different career choice. Um, you know, Guy also says in our film that if he could have written a Garth Brooks hit, he would have. He would have loved to have written a Garth Brooks hit, but he just did not have it in him to do that. Mm. He did not know how to do it. Um, but I don't think there was a schism because, you know, the people that came from uh, Texas to Nashville, I think for the most part were welcomed. And there's a really beaten road between Nashville and Austin that everybody's on back and forth, back and forth. And, and I think they're more like sister cities, um, although, the, you know, in many ways they do things very differently. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, maybe I'm I'm referring. Oh, in fact, actually, something just came to my mind because we mentioned uh, Vince Gill beforehand, who is a mainstream uh, Nashville artist. And um, he played on. Um, I, I love this track, actually, because uh, Dr. Good Doctor is Vince Gill, right? Playing guitar behind guy uh i think it is yes yeah. and th the thing about vince though is vince has a, a leg firmly planted in both worlds because he's such a great songwriter and such a great guitar player and he largely you know wrote his own songs or would co-write with one person but he wasn't getting in the room to specifically write country radio hits he just something about what he did struck uh, the right note with, with the mainstream country people. Um, but I, you know, I don't think that there are very many people like Vince that mm. can do both. Um, but he clearly did and clearly does and is beloved, you know, all around. Well, I'm going to play just a little bit then of, uh, of Dr. Good Doctor, because uh, I'm sure the last year a lot of people have felt this way. And also, it's a wonderful... Um, um, wh what I think about this is um, someone that played with George Gershwin, I interviewed, someone called Larry Adler, and, and who was a, harm a harmonica player, and he told me something about George Gershwin being the greatest composer because George Gershwin, he said, could write opera and could write classical music, but he could also write popular songs, like pop songs. And um, I would have to sort of think uh think that about guy as well because he could write really um you know really dense iconic masterpieces of american literature like desperados you know or, or la freeway um but he could also write you know things like this that i'm about to play doctor good doctor uh or little of both which are just fun songs but still uh, very um very very well written so yeah a little bit of doctor good doctor just because we were talking about vince skill and uh, and like that yes here at sitting with jan luca yes now 
feeling real depressed. I was feeling real low down. I just felt so bad that I could not get my butt up off the ground. Well, I was moping around the house. I was bumping into walls. I was crying at Andy Griffith's show. And I was snapping at the dog. Starting to fear for my sanity. Could not find my ego with both hands. So I decided professional help was the only hope for me. So I called up this number, which I'd gotten off TV. They said, Are you having marital problems? Are you emotionally impaired? Are you sure you're being followed? Are you just scared of being scared? Well, if so, you better come on in and have a little talk with the doc. So I did. Said, doctor, good doctor, I got trouble on my mind now. Listen to me, doc, I don't have too much time. I got a feeling down inside me and it will not go away. You know, it hangs on and bangs on my soul every day. When doctor, good doctor, I'm grabbing at loose ends And I hadn't felt like I used to since I don't remember when When yesterday got past me, today is all the same And tomorrow really scares me, man, I just can't play the game He said quit whining He said straighten up and fly right said life is not a piece of cake you want to know if my insurance is paid up well I'm okay and you're okay if the check's okay second best hundred dollars I ever spent Guy Clark and Dr. Good Doctor here at Sitting with Jan Luca. <laughs> My guess, if you just tuned in, you are 25 minutes and 13 seconds into Sitting with Jan Luca. Sitting with me is Tamara Savignano, um, who was um, had a close relationship with Guy O in the last 10 or so years um, of his life and wrote a biography and documentary on the man. Um, is that right, Tamara? Ten-ish years, right? His last ten years were uh, quite close. Well, let's see, ninety-eight to twenty-sixteen. So, however many years that is. Uh, yeah, I can't do the 18 math. Eighteen years. Oh 18 wow. Years. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I took I took eight years off for good behavior. That's okay. <laughs> um, but you know, there's something um, quite effortless. This is sort of one of the contradictions um, of of Guy Clark. I always find uh, there's something very effortless about um the way he sings and plays um and there's something sort of quite effortless it seems apparently about the way he writes but actually it's not he worked really very 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 hard at writing songs and he actually worked very very hard at um knowing how to deliver the songs right Oh, he did. Yes. It it was not effortless for him at all. It, it was much effort and he took it very seriously and he did not want to do any other job. Um, mm. You know, some songwriters or artists want to dabble in producing or 
or writing short stories or doing musical theater. And Guy did was not interested in any of that. He wanted to write his own songs and perform his own songs for the people. And he always said a song wasn't finished until you performed it and got the response from the audience. And that is what he focused on. And that is what he wanted to focus on. Um, and he and he did it so well. Yeah. And I think why it it might seem effortless to us is because it feels so familiar to us and it feels so welcome and connecting. And, you know, he says things that he might be talking about his personal relationship with Jack Prigg, but any of us who had a relationship with a grandfather figure can relate sure. um, and feel that, you know, feel that warmth and you know like the randall knife which he wrote about his dad you know right anybody that lost their dad can relate to that story you know with with vince gill he said it you know he has a similar story about golf clubs and i think we all have that um so i think that is the effortlessness is that it 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 is such a close connection to all of us i discovered guy musically when i was 14 and um, I heard old number one and she ain't going nowhere became my theme song for my teenage angst. And I, you know, he was uh, my mom's age and from Texas and I was, you know, a 14 year old girl in Wisconsin, but I still felt that connection. I interviewed him. I think it was four times, maybe three or four times. And the last time was when he was in New York city and he would always say, that was something that you arranged, if I remember right. But he would always say that part of the songwriting process was actually performing it to people. Yes, um, that, that was a really important part to him. Yeah, and, and you mentioned in your biography um, that he, uh, and he only just mentioned it in passing, and it always stuck with me that he spent quite a lot of time um, because, again, it, if ever you went to see him perform, it, he just seemed so natural, like he was in his living room and he was just standing there with an acoustic guitar in no hurry to the, you know, and he would just sort of hit a chord, take a breath, deliver a line, hit another <laughs> chord, take a breath, have a drag of a cigarette, <laughs> deliver a line. <laughs> <laughs> and it was and he played space um like really like no one else has really played space like that and um and i remember you mentioned in his in in the biography that you wrote also called without getting killed or caught that he actually spent quite a long time um thinking about that and even he practiced in front of his mirror is that is that right it um, is it is true yes and he and and when you know when he got to nashville and he started recording in the studio with bands and then he decided to go back to his roots and just be a folk singer and, and play his guitar and sing get up on stage with just him and his guitar um, he didn't record a record for five years. And during that time, he and Towns went out on the road together, but he also just stood in front of his mirror and practiced to try to, you know, regain what he and Towns did in the 60s when they were traveling around as folk singers before, you know, anybody knew either of their names. 
um, because that was really who Guy was as an artist. And I think Nashville was trying to take the square peg of Guy Clark and force it into the round hole of country music, and it just wasn't working. And it's because, you know, Guy's a folk singer. Oh, right. Oh, yeah, of course. Okay, yes, and Nashville is a country is a country town. Yes. Um, and also, I think the, the five-year break, when he came back after his five-year break, was actually uh, Old Friends, right? Which is what I yes. just played uh, Dr. Good Doctor with Vince Gill came off. Is and right? Old Friends is the first album that Guy did that he liked. Oh, oh yes. Okay, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. a good. So okay, and it's the first album he did um, exactly the way he wanted to do it. And um, he recorded the album before he had a label, and then he took it to Barry Poss at Sugar Hill um, to put it out. But, you know, those those five albums he did prior to that for um, RCA and Warner Brothers, he never liked those albums, which is why he later went back and re-recorded a live album called Keepers so he could re-record those studio, um, you know, the, the studio compositions that he did not like the arrangements of. He could redo it in his own folk singer way. Right. Um, and, and, and actually, that uh, br brings to mind something else. Just before uh, I go that way, though, I want to remind um, anyone listening that uh, that we are about 33 minutes into sitting with Jan Luca here at Radio Free Brooklyn. Also, Resonance FM 104.4 FM in the UK. I'm Jan Luca. I'll be sitting with you till seven sitting with me is tamara savignano oh uh, biographer documentary filmmaker um and uh, uh lots and lots of things um also i have duty bound to say that we like everybody else are completely broke here at radio free brooklyn so if you have any jingly jangly whatsoever any at all um radiofreebrooklyn.com there are donate buttons um all over the place on there they are you can buy t-shirts baseball caps um you can send in a donation let me look for it oh because i don't have a smartphone so i don't actually know what i'm about to say but i'm gonna say it anyway um if you do rfb gives and the s for gives would be a five rfb g-i-v-e five uh Oh, yes, you can text that to 44321 and uh, and donate something there. Otherwise, you can uh, join a newsletter, um, download the app, like us on uh, on all sorts of social media thingamajigs and like that. And, uh, yeah, Tamara, it's lucky that you're not sitting in front of me, actually. Otherwise, I I'd shake some loose change out of your pocket. That's how much... <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, you might do that from afar. Hey, I might do that from afar, yes. <laughs> Who knows? I might sometime when this war is over, I might actually be in Nashville and be able to do that at some point. <laughs> I hope so. That I, would be nice. I hope so, too. You know, you, you, you mentioned something um, uh, interesting that he never liked. He never liked his previous um, records because um, including, I mean, he was really... <laughs> He was his own worst critic. I mean, I'm not sure he liked any of his records. He was always very, very, very exacting. Um, he told me the same thing, oddly enough. I understand his country music records. He, he did a few sort of straight commercial sounding um, country right. music albums. But, you know, old number one, for example, his first one, which is considered um, by many songwriters... Um, as being sort of not quite like a big bang of songwriterdom, but certainly a cornerstone, right? Am I right in that? Yeah, like you are right. And I think Old Number One is a wonderful record, but I think why Guy wasn't pleased yeah, he is, doesn't you know, like they, it had, yeah. they had done a record with a different producer that he hated, and so he told the record company they could not put it out. And then Old Number One was just a bunch of demos that they pieced together. Mm. And so I think, you know, the reason Guy didn't like it is because he couldn't record it, you know, from scratch. Um, but having said that, he liked old number one better than he liked the next four that yes. were, you know, with the band in the studio. Um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, if if he had to, you know, if he would have just done what he what he wanted, if he was true to himself from the start, all of those records would have been different. Yeah, and and I should just add, um, the old number one has a whole who's who of of Nashville glitterati on it. I mean, Emmylou Harris, who I mean, they, they had a long relationship for decades, um, but also Steve Earle is playing bass on it. Uh, Waylon Jennings is um, singing background vocal uh, vocals on it. There's all the top uh, session people, uh, Ch uh, Chip and Reggie Young, are on it. Um, I mean, it's a whole who's who and and he sort of it's like when you're making conversation he, he, he try considers his singing on it he, he trying not to tell him sing song he thought he was sing songy on it which i thought was a bit unusual really um yeah, yeah no, i think guy you know guy told me that he kind of grew really into his bad, voice that he it took him a long time to learn to use his voice i you know i love those old oh, i love old number one yeah. And, and like the, the albums he doesn't like, I'm glad oh, he just songs alone. Um, and I think gone. Guy has a you know really unique uh, oh, voice. He, it's authentic to what he's writing. And, but he felt like it took him a while to really grow into his voice and know how to use it. Oh yes, perhaps yes. Because he was he was not a singer in the class. I guess he is singing in old number one, whereas his later ones, maybe the Sugar Hill Records, um, or the ones post after Old Friends, he, he's he's not he's sort of storytelling. I mean, he's singing too, but he's he's sort of right. scraping out the story. Um, but his songwriting on the country stuff is pretty mas masterful as well. Uh, I mean, there's Christelle. Kisses sweet as chewing gum. <laughs> yeah, he's he's the best with those lines. I mean, you know, he'll just pull out a line that'll just kill you. And, you know, other songwriters spend a lot of time in Guy's workshop trying to figure out how to do that. 
<laughs> well, I think it sounds like Guy Clark himself spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to do that, didn't he? Because he spent yeah. he would spend years on songs, right? Oh yeah, and, and they were um, never finished. You know, I remember when um, I produced a tribute album to Guy for his 70th birthday. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a double album set um, called "This One's for Him," uh, tribute to Guy Clark and. Roseanne Cash was recording uh, Better Days for that album. And uh-huh. Guy called me at least three times to make sure that Roseanne sang the most latest lyrics um, that were different from the lyrics that Guy had, had sung when he recorded it. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it was important to him that the, that the oh, right. yes. most current version of the song was was recorded. Yes, yes, he changed. He changed two lines in that, didn't he? About thirty years or twenty years or something after he wrote it. Um, yes. Um, yes, uh, uh, that's right. But so, would he just keep writing until someone took his notebook away, or how would he? Would he? I mean, he did spend a lot. I mean, for good reason, because he always used to say he always used to joke that, you know, he said, "Well." I've already got two songs, you know, I've already written a song. I mean, he, he was not shy about admitting that he worked very, very, very hard at writing and he was not going to even set foot in a recording studio until he had 10 good songs. Right. That, and that was the way he worked. He, you know, when anybody would ask him, when are you going to record another album? And he'd say, as soon as I have 10 good songs. And he might have 40 songs, but there weren't 10 that he thought was good enough. Um, so, and he, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of songs that Guy wrote that have never been recorded. And, you know, you uh, know, some of them are sheet music. Some of them are scribbles on graph paper. Some of them are in notebooks. Um uh, because he didn't think they were good enough, you know. Right, right. And and you just preempted my question. Did you see some of those songs? I mean, were there Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. So was and he right? I, and I and in the movie and in the book, um I have we have images of of some of them. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, and that stuff, you know, maybe someday somebody will do something with it. Um, guy might not like that because he doesn't, you know, he doesn't think they were finished songs. Well, just like, you know, um, Lyle Lovett recorded oh. Step Inside This House yes. and, in 1998. And Guy never thought that was a finished song. Guy recorded it. Guy re- never recorded it. He There's there's a recording of Guy doing it from the 1960s, um, not in a studio. Um, but he never recorded it because he didn't think it was a finished song. And and he would, you know, when Lyle would perform it, Guy would kind of shake his head and then he'd say to Lyle, that song is not finished. It's too long. Um, but I love that song. And and the little recording I have of Guy doing it from 1964 is just amazing. And by the way, oh, yeah, I'm just going to play. I'm going to play a uh, short bit of. Oh, hang on. Let me make sure, because if I'm doing it, I have to find the license. Oh, did I turn you off? Sorry, Tamara. No, I'm still here. <laughs> oh, you're still there. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I do all my own engineering and uh, and, and like that. I'm just going to play a little bit of Step Inside This House um, just so uh, because uh, I seem to remember the story behind this is that it might actually be the first ever song that Guy wrote. Is that right? It is. He wrote it in Houston in, in 1963 or 1964. And the recording I have of Guy um, is 1964 and he's singing it. And 
at that point, it, you know, it was step inside my house and the lyric was step inside my house, babe. Mm. And that song was passed around Houston, even though no one ever heard a recording of it. It was passed around from songwriter to songwriter. And by the time Lyle Lovett heard it from Eric Taylor, the title was changed to step inside this house, girl. Um, and Lyle always said that he, you know, he never thought he could pull off saying, babe. Um, but guys recording of it to me, you know, is just, it's guys first song. And when you hear that recording, it's unbelievable that this is the first song he ever wrote. And by the way, your listeners can get that song at our website. They can get their own download of singing that song. Oh, of guys singing that. Mm -hmm. Oh, fantastic. I'm going to play a little bit of it. Um, just so that picture hanging on the wall was painted by a friend. Gave it to me all down and out when he owed me ten. It doesn't look like much, I guess. Yeah, I just wanted it to make it just a a, a brief appearance. Um, I mean, I'm sort of, to be honest, I sort of half agree with Guy on it. I mean, it's no desperados waiting for a train, but. It's a very good first song, I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, any songwriter would be thrilled if that was the first song they ever wrote. Yes, I think a lot of songwriters would be very happy if it was the 30th song they ever wrote, too. Really? Really? Yeah, but but I I could sort of see um, there was other ones that he wrote, I think, maybe before he was a... um, before he got signed um was Waylon Jennings old mother's locket trick am I getting that title right yes and actually uh, an artist named Harold Lee recorded that same song first and that was Guy's first cut was Harold Lee's version of the old mother's locket trick ah okay um that's another song that Guy doesn't particularly care for too much although it's again right. it's it's a it's a um yeah Guy Guy Clark's worst critic actually seemed to be Guy Clark Yes. And I think that's, you know, that can be said for a lot of artists. You know, they look at their own work and, you know, look back at and wish they could have changed some things, you know, or, or did it differently. Um, but Guy was, you know, he was really a perfectionist and didn't want his songs going out into the world until he was happy with them. The same thing happened with Hemingway's Whiskey. You oh. know, he wrote the song and then um, he changed some lyrics and... Um, you know, wanted to make sure anybody that cut the song, Chris Christopherson cut it for the tribute album. And he, you know, had to make sure that the, the new lyric was used because he wanted to erase those old lyrics. He didn't want them around anymore once once he found the better line. Oh, that's interesting. Well, that's one of his um, that's one of his giant songs as well. That's one. of his. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to play a little bit. I should just remind um, remind you that if you have just tuned in, you are listening to Sitting with Jan Luke here at Radio Free Brooklyn and Resonance FM in the UK. And um, sitting with me is Tamara Savignana. Um, Guy Clark, uh, biographer and um, documentary filmmaker. And uh, yeah, also, also anything that we talk about will be on a Spotify playlist because I'm not going to play um, every single cut that we talk about. Otherwise, we'll have nothing to talk. We won't have any time to say a word. Um, so yeah, Spotify playlist under Sitting with Jan Luca. This show is also downloadable as a podcast after Saturday. And if you want to get in touch with me, 
you can do so at uh, Instagram, sitting with GT. And I'm going to play a little bit of Hemingway's Whiskey. That's one of his um, his titan one of these titan 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 songs. I don't know if that's the right word. Was he particularly proud of that song? There were several, you know, guys' later albums. I think is you know some of the best work he did, and there were you know some real gems, and and he he was proud of them absolutely. Oh, so he started to like his his recordings later on, right? Yeah, from old friends on, he yeah. was happy with all of those um, recordings. From you know, and so it was. I mean, those were quite a few albums. Old friends was in 1989, and then sure. um, that was Cold the Dog first soup and or the keepers and cold yeah. soup. Yeah, 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 Because I remember Dublin blues and boats to build. You know. Yeah, I remember asking him actually if that was the sound he had in his head. Uh, at the very beginning, like even during the Warner Brothers years when he was doing, you know, with drums and twanging Telecasters. Um, I, I remember, but he said, yes, it was actually. He'd always sort of fantasized about recording his songs that way, but he didn't really know. He didn't really know the music business well enough at that time to to really insist on anything or to guide it until really the Sugar Hill to the Old Friends album. Right. Which you said was 89. Is that right? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think he, you know, he trusted that that the experts would get him where he wanted to go. Uh, but they didn't, you know, and, and in that time, I mean, he scrapped two albums and he recorded five and he wasn't happy with any of them. Mm-hmm. And um, so when he started doing things his way in 1989 and, you know, then from 1989 to his last record, My Favorite Picture of You came out in 2013 and you know, those were all great albums. The the last ones, my favorite picture of you. Sometimes, some days the song writes you. Workbench songs. Mm-hmm. Um, the dark, you know, is a great. Oh album. yes, 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 uh, yes. Cold dog soup, Dublin blues, boats to build. You know, those um, are all wonderful albums. Guy loved all those albums, and he was in charge of the recording of all those albums. Yeah, and and I would have to say that all those albums that you've mentioned have absolutely no reverb on them whatsoever and no fade outs right right exactly they're very they're recorded you know yeah. the way a folk singer would record and they are also you know there's no filler there's, every song is a great song uh, every th- song is but i'm now i'm curious cuz you've been to his i mean he he's known particularly um his basement uh, was legendary in nashville which is where a he built guitars and b he wrote um, an awful lot, if not most of his songs, right? You, you, you went to the basement, presumably, right? Is that? Could, oh what? yeah, I was over at his house 
three, four, five days a week for, you know, eight years working on the book and then another two on the film and then, um, you know, right up until his death. So, so how many notebooks did he have? Because um, as I, I don't think he threw anything away, or anything he wrote away. So what was his sort of the writing side of his life? What did that actually look like in a room? Well, in the early days, he had notebooks. Right. And so there's a stack of notebooks. Um, but then when he figured out that he had to turn pages back to find lyric pieces, he started writing on graph paper mm-hmm. so he could spread them out on the table. So really, the notebooks were like in the 70s. And then, you know, from the 80s or so, mid, maybe mid 80s, I'm not sure exactly when. Um Oh, he wrote on graph paper. He wrote on graph paper because they were loose leaf. Is that what you're saying? Yes, they were loose leaf and he could spread them out on the table and look for, you know, this lyric might go with this song. Oh, (laughs) okay. Well, I'm going to put this on the playlist that's coming up uh, that I'll be putting uh, later this evening or tomorrow morning at the latest. And I think... you can. I'm going to try and tell this story and you can correct me if I've got it completely wrong. And it might be a story that either he told me or I got it out of your book. Uh, um, but I, I do remember asking him that he wrote on notebooks and then he was stuck. He was stuck. He had a verse and he couldn't think of a chorus. And then he had a chorus and he couldn't think of a verse. And he was like pacing the floor and whatever for however long a time it was. And then he sort of grabbed the notebook and he just grabbed a bunch of pages between his thumb and his forefinger. And there was a verse on one side of the, and there was the chorus on the other side. And I sort of want to say that that song ended up being heartbroken. Um, am I close? Is this half right? I, I, yes, I think so. Um, and that, you know, and he also not only heartbroken, but there were several songs that he ended up putting together by going back and forth on the pages. And that's when he was like, oh, OK, this is not a good way to write these songs. Ah, OK. Um, and the graph paper, you know, worked for him. That's what he liked. So so um, um, so how much how many stacks of graph paper or ring clip binders or whatever did he have in his basement oh uh too many to count (laughs) okay (laughs) so so he only released uh i don't know 60 songs or 80 songs or 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 100 but which is not many in a 50-year career but he actually had like just hundreds and hundreds lying around yeah hundreds of songs i always thought he was very guarded um, I always thought he just wanted to let his songs um, do do all the talking. And I always thought that maybe either just maybe his wife, Susanna, and Towns Van Zandt, and maybe Rodney Kroll might have been the only people that sort of probably sort of saw, knew him really, really well. He seemed to just want to let his, he seemed to sort of want to let his songs do all the talking. Well, I think that's true. And I was afraid of that when I started working on the book. And so I made a deal with him that I would come over to do an official interview. And if I didn't feel I was getting anything from him, that we were just going to cut our losses and move on. Because I think, you know, that was true with most people. He let his songs do the talking. Um, But he, 
you know, he kind of cut himself and blood on the table for me because he really wanted to see these projects come to fruition. You know, he was really proud of his work and he wanted there to be a book about him. Um, so the very first story he told me in our first official interview, and by this time we were friends for 10 years, you know, I knew him so I could be straight with him. And, um, so I came over the first day and I said, tell me about that ring on your finger, that turquoise ring that's in every picture you ever see of him. Yeah. And he told me the story of Bunny, his, his girlfriend and her suicide and, you know, that he had written, she ain't going nowhere for Bunny, which he had never told publicly And I, you know, I was just dumbstruck. I was like, wow, he's really going to go there, you know? Mm. And, um, and we became, you know, very intimate. He told me everything and he called all of his friends and told them to tell me everything. Um, and maybe it's because he was also sick. You know, he was diagnosed with lymphoma the same year we started working on the book and maybe feeling mortal and, and, um, wanted to get his true story down. Um, but I think prior to that, yeah, he he did want his songs to speak for himself. And he was, I wouldn't say guarded, but he just was private. Uh, I, I, uh, so she ain't going nowhere. He always used to introduce it about 30 seconds of a, uh, in a woman's life. Right. Right. And if right. I, I, he never told the story of Bunny on stage ever. Yeah, that's fascinating, actually. So yeah, so I guess in the last in the last bit, he wanted to, um, you know, the first time. Uh, I mean, it's one can't talk about Guy Clark without Tans Van Zandt because um, they're both considered uh, giants of uh, songwriting or ele- having elevated songwriting to literature. Um, but there was um, they, they never. <laughs> I guess none of them were co-writers, right? They never really talked about songwriting or wrote together, correct? No, they didn't. And it's because they wrote very differently. You know, Towns, mm. according to Guy, Towns would just dream up songs. He'd get up in the morning and say, oh, I dreamt the song and write it down. And for Guy, it was a real skill. He sat there and worked at it. And, you know, they were best friends, but I think mm. there was a lot about Towns that drove Guy a little nuts. Um you know, Towns and Susanna were more dreamy and vulnerable and mystical. And yeah. Guy was really stoic and pragmatic and no nonsense. Um, so Guy never uh, wanted to write with Towns. You know, it was never anything that he aspired to do. The, the, and they, you know, they were kind of like brothers, too. So, uh, you know, I think that that relationship was just, you know, too close to... Um, yeah, and I saw something really re- revealing once. Uh, I only saw Towns once, and it was him and Guy Clark, and, and Guy had opened for Towns. And, um, well, first of all, Towns was switched on. He actually was really, really good. It was maybe a decade before he passed, so he wasn't in rotten shape yet. And um, so Guy did his thing, and, um, and then when Towns came out... Guy uh, stepped out from backstage really quietly. No one noticed it, but I was sitting near the bar <laughs> and, he, and he sat on the floor by the bar and just watched Towns like like riveted by it, which I thought was interesting. I don't know. It, it, it sort of told me everything almost. Yeah. I mean, and Towns was Guy's yardstick, you know, mm. if, if you know, he was Towns' biggest fan. And, and if Towns liked a Guy song, that was... The approval that guy wanted he Ooh, didn't t- care if anybody else liked his songs he just wanted towns to like his songs tamra uh, uh, uh i'm sorry to jump in i've just i have to interrupt uh you and me because i've just seen the time 
<laughs> and I have to say, if you've just tuned in, you've just missed sitting with Jan Luca here at Radio oh. Free Brooklyn. But I want to leave you the last word. Um, tell tell us how we can get my guest has been Tamara Savignano, and uh, tell tell us uh, Tamara how we can see your um, your documentary. Well, if you want to see it anytime soon, we're we're doing virtual screenings uh, throughout April, and you can buy tickets at withoutgettingkilderkot.com. Uh, we have special guests, including uh, Steve Earle and Sarah Jarose is Friday night. Steve Earle is Sunday. And then next weekend we have um, Andrew Combs and Kix Brooks. And then after that, I don't know. Back up all your dishes. Make no all good wishes. And say goodbye to the landlord for me. And some of bitches always bored me. Throw out then. LA paper, a moly box of vanilla wafers, adios to all this concrete, gonna get me some dirt road back street. I can just get off of this LA freeway without getting killed or caught, down that road on a cloud of smoke to some land. I ain't bought, 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 and is, is to you, old skinny Dennis. The only one I think I will miss, I can hear old bass singing, sweet and low like a gift you'll bring. Play it for me one more time now. Got to give it all we can now. I believe everything you'll say. Surely and me, we got something to believe.